Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Mumbrella's Deputy Editor, Josie Tutty. And joining me to break down the week in media and marketing is our news editor, Paul Woolbank. Hello, Josie. Senior media reporter, Zoe Samuels. Hello. And senior agencies reporter, Abigail Dawson. Hi. Plus, coming up later, we'll be chatting to the men behind one of Australia's most celebrated rebrands, Woolies, Hans Holzbosch, and the ex-GM of corporate marketing at Woolies, Luke Dunkley, about the creative process. I still remember the very early drawings were about fresh food people rather than fresh food. Letting Coles own the colour red. And it was actually the head of supermarkets that turned around and said, where's my red? And what it takes to make a great logo. Well, um, a bad logo is um, one that does not communicate what a brand stands for. I mean, it's as simple as that. But first, the week's topics. Fairfax takes 10 to court over Boss. JWT and Wonderman form Wonderman Thompson. Sunita Gloucester leaves PwC to join WPP. And Bega hands media and creative duties to Thinkville. So the 10 boss saga continued this week as Fairfax took 10 to court over the name of one of its newly rebranded multi-channels. Zoe, what happened? Do we want to start with um, probably the complaint that came a couple of weeks back, I think is the best place to start. So basically on October 31 of this year, 10 rebranded two of its multi-channels, 1 and 11, to 10 10 boss uh, replacing 1 and 10 peach replacing 11 which for its own separate reasons was heavily criticised, but I won't get into that. Shortly afterwards, we had read that there was a small tweak to the 10 Boss logo. Originally, it was a number 10 that kind of looked like a red lotto ball, uh, and on the side of it had the word Boss written in red. All of a sudden, the O in the Boss had sort of been coloured in. That was apparently because Fairfax Media had made a complaint because they believed that they it was too similar to the logo that they used for the Australian Financial Review's Boss magazine, which they've had for decades now, actually, or they've had the trademark for that logo for decades. So it started out as a complaint, and all of a sudden we started seeing these trademarks awaiting examination appear from 10 on uh, IP Australia, and slowly we thought that, that that probably was the end of it. Basically, what had happened was Fairfax has actually lodged pre- uh, preliminary proceedings against 10 over this logo, arguing that it's still too similar and that ultimately, and my understanding based on um, other reports, is that it could cause confusion for consumers of either product in that if you're watching 10 Boss, maybe you think it's associated to the AFR Boss brand and they don't want to obviously be aligned. The other thing that kind of comes into this, obviously, is the Nine and Fairfax merger. Nine is a broadcaster, so more directly competes with 10 in that capacity. And it kind of raised this idea of, well, what are they going to do with Boss as part of the Nine Fairfax merger? Is it going to be across more platforms? Are they thinking about leveraging it in other ways, which, of course, naturally would cause complications if 10's got a multi-channel with the same name. So ultimately, that's where the arguments come in. It's around the idea of this logo and the, the similarities. And I think the court date is actually on Monday of the pre- preliminary proceedings. So it's it's moving pretty swiftly, but Fairfax has said they take their intellectual property rights incredibly seriously and they're, they're prepared to battle to, to obtain 
and re- retain those rights. So do you think if the nine Fairfax merger wasn't happening, do you think Fairfax would be as worried as they are? Well, that's a really good question. I think there was the cynics out there think that the reason that this even exists is because of the nine Fairfax merger and because nine is involved in it. I'm not sure if there's been an instance before where Fairfax has felt threatened, but I'd say that, you know, they they seem to be taking this a lot further than what we initially thought was just a complaint about it, which you might have said you're just doing that because, you know, you're about to be part of nine. It seems as though they're they're quite legitimately uh, frustrated by this. And I can kind of see the point too. Ten Boss is a very different proposition to AFR Boss, incredibly different, and you really wouldn't want – either one you wouldn't want the consumers to be confused but you also probably don't want to align the two brands because they're so different and somebody that as as somebody who owns a a couple of trademarks uh, i'm genuinely surprised that 10 got uh, this through examination because uh, it is similar to the afr boss and they are in a similar marketplace as well so it's it just surprises me that even the lawyers at 10 would even choose to use that name that uh, somebody didn't say early in the process let's not do that and what i read of zoe's report and the uh, and fairfax's filings it really seems to me that 10 are in trouble with this that um, if and of course if fairfax do get that injunction up then what happens to all of that branding that 10 currently has that would have to come down i'd imagine and if if fairfax do win does this mean that um, they're going to have to change the entire boss name or is it just a case of altering that logo so that it's not as similar as it is? That's going to come down to the court, but it really does look uh, – it doesn't look good, let's put it that way, for 10 because uh, yeah, in the worst case, yes, they would have to get rid of all of that branding. Um, I, I really don't know. I don't have the legal expertise for That's that. That's a lot of money down the drain either way. Next, another WPP agency bites the dust. This week saw the end of an era as JWT merged with Wonderman to become Wonderman Thompson. This was a global move and it wasn't the first merger from WPP in recent weeks. Abby, is this something of a trend that we're seeing? If you count, I suppose, three now, maybe four if you four or five if you include the media agencies, but in the creative world, in WPP, if you create three, a trend um, – it started last year when the White Agency and Grey Group Australia merged to become White Grey in Australia. And, you know, since then we've also had VML YNR, so the merger of VML and YNR, which happened rather recently. I was speaking to a couple of people in the industry about this and, and Mark Reed, the new CEO globally of WPP, it's speculated that he's been saying he wants five creative brands globally. So there's obviously a lot more than five creative brands within WPP, AUNZ and WPP globally. So consolidation is something that I think a lot of people have been expecting since since he took the helm from Sir Martin Sorrell. But it's really interesting here because JWT has been around for 154 years or so. So a really huge legacy creative agency merging with Wonderman, which which has a real strength in digital. And that's sort of similar to what we saw with YNR and VML. YNR having being a very huge heritage brand and having great strength in creativity and VML also being a little bit more digitally focused. So it will be quite interesting to see if future mergers also sort of follow that same pattern. A lot of cynics have been saying that this might simply be a cost-saving exercise. Obviously, 
they probably will be saving some money with this one but is that all it is or is it really something more do you do you see it in that cynical way or do you see it as as a positive step for WPP it's an interesting question because uh, of course it's saving money and you know if you look at WPP and you looked at all the agencies they have across the globe I mean it's just not viable to have to have that many agencies anymore and and they just didn't have the clients that they used to you know 20 30 years ago so you know if agencies are underperforming and it's it's costing too much to keep them running it, it really does make sense to merge them but i do think that it is also a new strategy and a reinvigorated approach from WPP to say we're going to come together as a unified unit and be a lot stronger which is certainly a different strategy that Mark Reed has bought comparatively to Sir Martin Sorrell I'd probably agree with Abby on that one. And I think the, especially what you were saying about the digital and the traditional, you know, it's the same concept that we've had in publishing or TV that everyone's had the same problem. You've kept them apart for so long, thinking of them as two separate things. And then all of a sudden everyone goes, oh, hey, maybe clients need both of that. Maybe if we brought the businesses together, we can do more cross-platform stuff. So it, I get the, the cost everything 100%, but also it's a time, it's a reflection of the times changing. Everyone should have probably been starting or expanding digital arms of traditional businesses as opposed to launching completely separate things. But that's the same problem that we've had with almost every media company in Australia, if not, if not globally. And it's interesting too whether these brands have, uh, how these brands, how these agencies have um, evolved over time. One of the things that I'm really interested to see when the next WPP results come out is how much they mark down the value of these because you'd think the JWT brand in itself was probably worth quite a bit of money in goodwill itself. Uh, now that gets marked down with a merged agency, that's going to change things as well. I mean, it's, I also think it, at some point it does become counterintuitive to have agencies competing against each other. And as the, the landscape is becoming more and more competitive in Australia and there are more and more agencies outside WPP alone, it does make it a harder competitive set too, which of course, you know, if you, if you have two agencies that complement each other, it kind of just makes sense. And speaking of WPP, we had another headline from their camp this week as PwC's Sunita Gloucester joined the company in the newly created role of Chief Customer Officer. Paul, you wrote the story this week. What did you think of the move? Well, I was surprised by it and I think quite a few people were because Sunita hadn't been at PwC very long and uh, uh, PwC announced that they were going to uh, wind up that position so they're not going to replace us. So that makes you ask what's happening at their CMO advisory there, which seems to be still in operation. It's still um, sponsoring a, um, a lift out in the AFR at the moment. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. But I've got to think about the whole chief customer officer um, idea that um, why do you need a chief customer officer? Are all these other C-level execs not thinking about the customers? Is the CEO thinking about his yacht or his vineyard or whatever rather than the customer? This is um, – and bringing in an, into an agency structure these overarching senior-level roles, uh, what does that say about the individual general managers for those um, agencies? I think if you look at it from the strategy approach of WPP as a whole, and it's a trend that we've seen certainly this year, is holding companies creating bespoke models on the off the back of winning accounts. So like when they won BP and, and you create a bespoke model for this, to me it sort of seems like they are creating a top tier WPP designated leadership team 
to sort of reflect that a little bit better and to help in those sorts of pitches. So instead of going in with, you know, the the CEO of JWT and the ECD of white, grey or whoever, you actually have a, a dedicated team of WPP chief customer officers and CEO and COO, etc. The thing that worries me with all of this, though, is that it gets very, very messy with the PLs and the who takes credit for what within the. So if you have, say, the WPP senior management coming in saying, well, we've got this integrated offering and then um, we're going to give it over to to one of our five different agencies or maybe a mix of those five different agencies' functions. Where does this get accounted for internally? Where are the lines of responsibility? Uh, I can see massive turf wars within agencies about, uh, well, we've put done all of this work, we want this accounting done against our cost centres. It really strikes me as getting messier. And uh, one of the other things, that, uh, going back to the cost-cutting thing earlier, is whenever I'm writing about the agencies, which is fairly rarely, um, I'm always struck at the uh, number of senior managers that are there, that's a lot of overhead that's in there. And going back to that question about cost cutting, that's where you can see some real cost cutting happen. But again, these managers are going to fight over uh, where who's accounting for the revenue, whose costs it's going against. This this strikes me as really, really messy, these sort of structures. Look, as, as John Steedman said, who's who's stepping in for uh, Mike Conahan, who recently departed as the CEO of WPP AUNZ, said that Sunita's role was really, and I quote this, focusing on growth and creating a leadership profile. I can see where he's coming from there and when I refer to it's really about creating a big, heavy-hitting team designated to WPP. And finally, in this very agency-heavy episode of Mumbrella Cast, Bega has consolidated its media and creative with Thinkabell. Some have been hailing this as the beginning of full service 2.0. Abby, do you agree? I do think that the full service term and era is really coming back. And that's, you know, a a reflection of what marketers are asking for and what brands need. And you have some brands that really prefer to have a roster and you have some brands that prefer to sort of get everything done in that one-stop shop. But the interesting thing about Thinkabell is, and it's been really evident in a lot of the work that they've done this year, Vegemite and Sukin being an example there, is that they are a really strategically led agency. And I've said this about their work before, it always has a sound and clear strategy that's always really evident. And I think that also lends itself really well to media. And if you look at the makeup of, of the exec team at Thinkabell as well, you've got Margie Reid there who was who is their managing director now, but was at media agency OMD for, I think, around 11 years. So they really do have a strong makeup of media there. And I mean, it's not only Margie with this sort of full service role, but they also recently hired a PR specialist who's there full time in Sydney. And they actually hired her from Tribe, uh, Tribe being an influencer marketing platform and agency. So yeah, Georgie Kavanagh recently joined as PR and, you know, I'm, I'm well aware in the market as well that there have actually been traditional PR agencies pitching against Thinkabell at the moment. So I definitely think that they are trying to position themselves as a full service agency and for them as an agency, I think it makes sense. 
And of course, this harks back to the old days of the full service agency back in Mad Men era. And I know, Paul, something you referenced in your story about this. Do you want to just maybe give us a brief history of the, where this came from, why it stopped happening and why we're going back to it now? Well, it was the traditional, uh, the advertising agency would book the advertising itself with the uh, with the outlets. And back in those days, of course, it was newspapers and uh, then radio stations and then television. And over... Um, we we had some critics of of that story saying that there were independent media agencies prior to the 1980s and and that's true but they were a small part of it whereas the uh, bulk of the agencies did it themselves over time that got hived off to independent agencies and uh, and we saw the rise of those i also think it's it's rather an interesting time for that full service model especially if it's being media being born out of creative, which is what it traditionally was, is that with media agencies going through a lot in terms of trust and transparency with clients, I think that clients are a lot more open to having these conversations about getting their media from other sorts of mediums, especially when you've already got that relationship there with the creative too. Coming up, 10 years on, Tim will be talking about the rebrand of Woolies from the two men who made it happen. Joining us now on the Mumbrella cast, seven long years since his last visit, is Hans Holzbosch. Hey, good afternoon. Hans is the brand designer responsible for the development of many of Australia's most recognisable brands, including Woolworths, Qantas and Virgin Australia. Also with us is Luke Dunkley, who was previously GM of corporate marketing at Woolworths and worked with Hans to create that uh, now, I think, celebrated Woolworths rebrand, which has now reached its 10 decade point. Welcome, Luke. Yes, good afternoon. And Luke now works as a marketing consultant. So... Let's start with you, Hans. Um, I've heard people talk about the Woolies rebrand as one of the world's top case studies and how to do a rebrand. Um, as we look back 10 years on, what do you think it was that actually made it successful? I'd, uh, <clears throat> a number of things. Um, one clearly was the relationship that I managed to build with Luke and with the head of supermarkets. Um, I could still say today that that was totally unique at the time. There was an immediate trust between, between definitely between Luke and myself. Um, trust that we were going to nail this job. And I think that once that happens, well, you'll probably give 120% to a, to a project, right? Once that happens, that moment when you know we're going to nail it, but it needs a lot of trust from both sides to be able to do that. And I think that we captured that. Brilliantly. And what did the brief look like for you? Well, the brief was very loose. Um, the, the, the problem at the time was that Woolworths had a, a logo, a mark, that said Woolworths, and then written underneath it was the fresh food people. But somehow it didn't say the fresh food people. And uh, Norm Onicool who was the then head of supermarkets, and Luke, had the foresight to make a big change. So, Luke, what were you thinking about? As What was the real brief in your head? As, as Hans has just sort of forecast there, it was bringing to life the promise. The, the idea to position Woolworths as the fresh food people, which happened back in 1987, was genius. Bear in mind, the supermarket sells about one-third 
of its turnover in fresh food. So to position your brand around something that doesn't even represent half of your business seems crazy. But fresh food is the, is the point at which people make a judgment on your capacity as a food retailer. So the idea to say what makes Woolworths different is fresh food and the people who serve it to you, uh, that was a stroke of genius. What wasn't a stroke of genius was the name Woolworths in all capital letters with a GT stripe either side. Uh, they, they sort of dropped the ball when they came to making a visual representation of that promise. So really the brief was take, take the spirit of that promise and turn it into a visual icon, turn it into a symbol. And what do you think made it work? I've said this to Hans before. I think, um, and it's just sort of the answer to to any question about good versus bad logos, I think a, a, uh, a logo is like a pop song. If it's a good one, it's remarkably simple. It immediately feels familiar. And you almost feel like you could have done it yourself. In other words, it seems like it sort of comes out of you as much as it comes out of the source. And I think that's what made this work. Of course, it, it did put the full stop on the fresh food people sentence. The positioning was well established. The logo didn't have to establish the positioning. It had to honour the promise of the positioning. Now, Hans, I remember <laughs> when we, we talked about the launch of, uh, of the, the rebrand, which included the logo, um, seven years ago now, so we're already looking back at that point. You mentioned at the time you went through something like a hundred logos, a lot of which were were looking at some aspect of, you know, peeled fruit or something along that. Uh, you you said you even thought of the W as looking a bit more like a melon than an apple, <laughs> but I think most people have now settled on the fact that it's an apple, even if that wasn't in your mind. It, it definitely wasn't in my mind to begin with because I wanted to capture fresh food, and that's more than an apple, mm. you know, that... Yes, of course, green, apple, says fresh. There's no doubt about it, right? But I try to capture more than just, just an apple. Um, a hundred logos, yeah, just about, just about there because I started somewhere else. I started with people. I still remember the very early drawings were about fresh food, people rather than fresh food. And it, it took a while. It took a while. Um, to, to to develop that further and and um, and I think that with a great mark, um, it takes the time to do it right. And I guess we've got these two components. We've got the fresh food people. Yeah. We've got the look, yeah. and then the third aspect, of course, which tends to change is you have this sort of campaign based elements that comes in as agencies come and go and campaigns come and go. Correct. Do, do you think with time that platform? Has been uh, has stood its stead as these different campaigns have come and gone with it. Yeah, I think that uh, look, if you design a logo and it's got to be something special, especially for a company like Woolworths, right? Um, you need to make sure that it is timeless. That's number one. It, it cannot be gimmicky. It cannot be anything else but a but a strong mark, right? And then, of course, what what I did uh, right from the beginning is whatever I designed, I brought into a store. They, these guys didn't know about this, by the way, but I walked into a store half the time and I plonked it on a bit of packaging and I put it somewhere else and I took lots of photographs of the buildings and things like that. I put it on there just to see, will it work? And 
will it stand the test of time is even more important, I guess. And I do this all the time when when I design. Right, first thing normally when I what, what when I design a mark is put it on an app, like you know, tiny, and then I put it on a uh, football field to see whether this actually is relevant for long term that it can be in, uh, implemented anywhere. Um, I think the other thing is the way that we designed it was that, and and Luke gave me a a, a, a lot a really great hand in this down the track was that we, we we made the 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 logo so strong and powerful in its implementation that any design company later on would be able to implement it and make it better and make it you know and and continue the journey with that mark. Luke, do you think that for the the creative agencies who who you know had to get messaging out into the market day in day out week in week out campaign based stuff did this platform make it easier for them to do that job do you think it did it did and i have to say in their defense the creative agency we were working with at the time didn't we're not even attacking them yet no no <laughs> no i know but but i'm saying this in the, in the in the sense of anyone who's been in the creative industry knows you you tend to at the very least uh take exception to the work of other people, uh, sometimes pour scorn upon it. But um, no, they were quick to see the advantage for them in it. And really, it's the same advantage as, as our property division had in making a new pylon sign. <laughs> and that is that they would be able to finish a TV ad or run a press ad and allow the branding, uh, the identification of the advertiser to be something that would be very quick. You wouldn't have to read it. It would be a, a snapshot. We, we we animated the uh, the logo from the word go in TV, uh, which I think helped build it as well. And what were your for TV? What were your kind of creative highlights and lowlights over the last decade? Like, is the there high- a campaign you think I'm really proud of that? Yes. And a campaign you think I wouldn't have done that? Yes. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll just pick the first two that come to mind. Uh, well, the the, the the favorite is an easy one. Um, Oh, maybe there's a dead heat for favourite. The, the my favourite for the the Woolworths Fresh Food People Promise was inside a campaign that we did with uh, with M and C Saatchi, um, where we showed everyday people's obsession with fresh food, and we we claimed in the campaign to share their obsession. Uh, and uh, in that series, the one that we ended up shooting uh, entirely in Greek, uh, where a man who's trying to grow his own Tomatoes in the background and the backyard has rigged up an elaborate bird um, scaring mechanism. Uh, fiddles with this thing all day while his long-suffering wife goes to Woolworths and buys the tomatoes and makes salad with them. Uh, I loved that just because it was an ad that everybody... A bit like the point I made about the logo, everybody seemed to relate to it. Uh, I happened to be married to a Greek woman, so my in-laws uh, really resembled that couple. But people who uh, people who had only met Greeks at work or went to school, they, everyone seemed to get it. There was a truth about it that uh, everyone identified with. So it was one of a series, but it was the one that I think captured that idea. And, it, and if you could pick one that you wouldn't do again? Uh, yes, I think we did a thing called Price Knockdown, 
once uh, that involved boxing gloves and prices, prices being punched and it that was sounds like the a little a little like a certain down down <laughs> prices are down big red hand Is I'd, rather, it, I'd rather you didn't yes to remind me of that but um it certainly it certainly was a low point for very many reasons and i suppose i think you know that that's a reality though isn't it you can't think about a brand in isolation that might bring you back yeah. in on this hands you yeah. have to think about the competitor set as well totally absolutely it's it's vital that you do your research research and more research it is and and not just in australia we just went global we looked at you know you look at tesco you look at walmart you look at all those brands that are out there right how did they do it and you know what what are they trying to portray with that brand you know what's the what's the message that that a brand tells the people we did all of that i mean i I think that Luke and I spent more time talking about that than we actually did the work because the work just came out of all that. And presumably colour becomes really important then Vital. because I'm sure if coals didn't exist, red would have been quite an interesting colour to, 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 have, to have been thinking about rather than green. Well, it was. As a matter of fact, um, if in the very early days, we designed a green logo. And it was actually the head of supermarkets that turned around and said, where's my red? And um, and I said, it doesn't need red. But he says, so are you prepared to hand the color red on a silver platter to Colts? And, wow, well, woke me up. <laughs> so for a while, the Woolworths name was in red. And then later it changed to the green because, I mean, they don't need to. And look, let's get this little behind the scenes insight, which you wouldn't normally get. What's it like when you're sitting in a marketing team and a, a, a big campaign breaks from a competitor? Because there'll be a moment when you see it for the first time and sometimes you'll think, oh, I'm glad they did that. And other times, God, I wish we'd done that. What, 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 what's it like? How do you, do you, do you pick up the papers on a Saturday morning and you see the print ad for the first time? You know, what, oh. how do you think about it when that moment happens? Um. There's so many people in a supermarket business. You don't. Uh, it's not orderly. Somebody will see something. Uh, if you haven't been able to sneak a picture, a peek somehow uh, before launch, somebody will see something, uh, and you'll hear about it instantly. Um, that what happens, of course, is there's an initial judgment, which is it's rotten. It's no good. That lasts between ten and fifteen seconds usually before you start being serious about it. What I used to do is I'd go out into my team, uh, many of whom were people who'd come up from checkouts. They'd made their way up into the marketing division from checkout operators, and they were terrific people to get a real grassroots feel about anything, anything at all. The, the economy, uh, the quality of tomatoes, but, but if it was a new ad campaign, I'd ask one of them, what do you think of it? And, and if they liked it, they were very embarrassed, but you could tell immediately if they liked it because they'd start getting awkward. And they go, oh, well, I don't think it's any good. But And you immediately knew they've, they've nailed it. Look, I must confess, I – and it's, it's, it's there, it's published online. When you see the story I wrote about the first Coles down-down ad with status quo – you can just read it dripping with contempt and disdain in the mm. way that I've written it. It's really sarcastic. It's you can imply that it's a low point for status quo. Um, and, you know, I'm 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 embarrassed to read it now because it was it was a marketing campaign yeah, that worked. Yeah. Do you remember? And I promise not to talk about Coles all off or, or, or yeah. for no, the, no, this whole conversation. What was your reaction? To, to seeing that status quo positioning, the because I think that was the big red hands for the first time as yeah. well. Uh, very like yours, very like yours. We all learned a lesson in that period. Uh, 
um, there are times when you think it can't be this simple and you gradually learn that it is this simple. To be fair to them, the, ma- the magic in that campaign wasn't the music, the band, the hand. It was all those things. But the magic was that they had a campaign of, of price drops and they stuck with it. That was that was the real breakthrough there. Supermarkets had both the both the big supermarkets had been in a pattern of weekly specials, and everyone both sides had talked about permanent price reductions here and there, but it was treated like a gimmick. There's uh, choosing milk to start with was was brilliant, but their real strength was that they didn't back away, because that's if you look through retail history, that's generally what happens. If they'd backed away three months later, we wouldn't be talking about it at all, let alone whether it was genius or not. The fact is they stuck with it, and the more they stuck with it, the cleverer it became. Now, Hans, mm-hmm. but just before we go back to, to, to Woolworths, while we're on colour, I think of Qantas and Virgin, both reds, both brands you've worked <coughs> with. Um, where, I, I think I'm not thinking you wouldn't be currently working with either one at the moment. I work for Abbott Virgin. Right, okay, so there's a declaration of interest there then. Yes. Like, so it's not worth asking this question. I was going to ask, which one do you think's doing better? <laughs> Virgin. <laughs> do you want me to say it again? <laughs> you, um, well, you're, wel- you're welcome to make the case. The, okay, the case was this. At Qantas, it was great, but I was one of six designers, okay? So you had an industrial designer, you had a fashion designer, you had, a, you know, like all sorts of designers, and I was doing brand, okay, a good. I designed the kangaroo, good, great, but I was still part of a of a group of 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 uh, special uh, designers in the field, right? Um, John Borghetti at Virgin, he offered me the job as creative director for everything. And that is just an opportunity you cannot let go. That was just a masterstroke from him. But it gave me that opportunity to, uh, my God, to delve into every facet of the brand you know, from lounges to airports to interior design of of aircraft to, to the seats, the fabrics, the ladders, the music, the lighting, just everything was involved in that. And that is a job that I treasure for the rest of my life. It was just something that was so unique. If I remember and rightly, they even put you in the ad, didn't they? They did. <laughs> they did, Yes. Look, for t- a fraction of a second, yes. <laughs> and look, we, we, we're talking about that sort of that key relationship between somebody who owns the brand and your role. You know, we we, we talked about um, the fact that you you and Luke didn't really know each other before you got into this. How do you start a relationship like that from scratch? What are the steps? Um, gosh, first of all, you know, you you you. You need to know what you're doing. You need to know what you're talking about. And building trust is is absolute key. And that's why, for instance, John Borghetti gave me the job. He and I already worked together at Qantas before. But it's it's building trust. And I think that it was – I kind of felt that that was instant with, uh, it, with, with Luke and uh, with the team at Woolworths as well, though. It was kind of instant, like a – um, and for them, of course, knowing that I'd done Qantas and I'd done the kangaroo, um, I think that gave them that extra bit of trust that because, I mean, you know, the kangaroo is the, one of the most, um, you know, well-known brands in the world as well, though, and it gave, I think, Luke and his team the trust to be able to to uh, to connect with me. And Luke, what, and built, your com- what built your confidence? 
Well, you know, Hans plays this down, but but he is a unique individual and has the capacity to make you feel like a long lost friend the second you meet him. Uh, and and I think we started off really hitting it off just so well as two individuals. There, we were past that first process where you've got to sound each other out and learn and so on. I think, uh, of course, it amounts to trust. But it, it meant for me that I thought there's nothing I can't tell this guy about his work. Uh, there's nothing he's not going to take seriously in feedback. It's, it's going to work uh, from day one in the sense that all of those strange behaviours that can go on between a client and a creative uh, supplier, uh, the dance that goes on where no one wants to admit they were wrong, none of that was going to slow us down. Now, we had the advantage that the relationship really only had to be between Hans and I and and this fellow, Norm Onickel, who was running, my boss, who was running supermarkets at the time. We didn't have to work out a cocktail of relationships. But 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 uh, we hit it off immediately. Uh, the other thing I think is worth mentioning, and the Qantas thing plays into this too, Woolworths is a gigantic organisation, obviously, in terms of numbers of employees and so on. But... It's it's also, when you go to think about any kind of brand mark, you're going to be applying it to everything from literally a packet of toothpicks to the, the side of a, of a semi-trailer. So you need someone, not just I mean, any design will say I can do all that, but you need someone who has some reputation or some success and, and experience in working with all of those different permutations. More than anything, it tells you that person's going to be mature enough to take it on the chin when you say it isn't working. They'll have been there before. So Luke, I guess, has handed over the uh, the flame of being the brand custodian, no longer being with Woolworths. So the CEO, Brad Banducci, now carries that torch. What does he think of the brand? Well, he, he wrote me a, a wonderful um, couple of sentences about um, about the brand. And he said, he said in, this, uh, in this piece... Brand is everything for a customer-facing business like Woolworths Supermarkets. And he goes on to say, Thanks to Hulsboss, we have been blessed with a logo that powerfully captures the very essence of our brand. It has stood the test of time, and more than that, it has become an icon in the Australian landscape. And uh, Hans, I I know one of the things that... um always tends to happen on the comment thread of Umbrella is when a big rebrand takes place, the focus becomes just about the logo, which I know is quite a you know, relatively unsophisticated thing to, to, to focus the conversation there. But what for you makes a good logo versus a bad logo? Well, um, a bad logo is um, one that does not communicate what a brand stands for. I mean, it's as simple as that. If you design, if you design just anything, and it doesn't really capture what that what that company is all about, well, you failed. Why, chick, fail? Um, a, a great logo is is brutally simple for starters, right? Because it tells the story of the brand that can be understood by by anyone, by all different ethnic and and, and cultural settings. That makes a great brand, in my eyes. Now, we're going to zigzag back seven years now, as I've been alluding to. We we chatted before in the Mumbrella cast, so rather cheekily seven years ago, we were still using a, 
uh, a WordPress theme and a logo I'd created in Word, uh, which I'd, I'd knocked up in 10 minutes saying to to a colleague at the time, oh, look, I've got a friend in a design agency who will help us out with a logo, but this will do for the first week. And it, it then stood for our first seven years or so. Um, so this is the conversation we had seven years ago and I ask you for your advice. If, um, if you were to rebrand M- Umbrella, what would you do? <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would probably design an Umbrella and, and somehow work the M of mum in there. That's one way. The other thing is I could really uh, design a mum and uh, visualise a mum and then put the uh, umbrella afterwards. I'm, I'm picturing Tim in a dress right now. So. <laughs> so, I've told you to stop picturing that sort of yeah. thing. So that'll be $50,000. Thank you. <laughs> so it did take five years from that conversation until we finally redesigned Mumbrella. How do you think we did? Well, I think you did all right. You followed my advice. So, and I and I told you what you needed to do. So I'll send you the bill tomorrow, if that's okay with you. That's very, very and kind of you, yes. And talk about it. Is that, you feel yeah. good about that? So do you, and uh, 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 I think the thing is, we, we, you, you, you thought a lot about the word mum, didn't you, when we talked seven years yeah, ago? Yeah, yeah, originally I thought there was a lot in the word mum, because uh, you could be a mum, and... Uh, and uh, because you are, you know, that the I see Umbrella as the patriarch of uh, of brand and advertising in this country. So I mean, you you know, and mums usually are, um, but you really are an umbrella. I think that it's more like it. What do you think, mate? <laughs> uh, do I have to comment? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a very it's a satisfactory logo. <laughs> oh, um, uh, yeah, but that's the way it is designed. It's not the idea. It's the way it's designed. <laughs> on, 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 on that note of high praise, <laughs> Hans and Luke, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Tim. Thank you very much. And just before we go, a bit of housekeeping. I'm sure you've heard this one before many times now if you're a regular MumbrellaCast listener. But thank you for supporting the MumbrellaCast. And of course, if you haven't had a chance yet, we'd love for you to rate it or even write a review on iTunes. That's all for now. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Thanks. Joyce. Thanks, Joyce. Bye.